Father, God, I love this season. I'm so thankful that you have seen fit in your uh, divine wisdom to use even something like seasons in nature to reveal your incredible glory. God, the spring is such a picture of coming out of the cold and, and darkness of our lostness and sin and into the warmth and the beauty of your grace and mercy and growing into the men and women you've called us to be in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that this Easter, we would exalt your name uh, and your gospel to the community around us, that we would be a faithful reflection of your love to uh, the city that we've been sent to here, Crestview. And, uh, and now, God, as we pick back up in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, uh, we're, we're near to the end, Lord, would you, uh, as we prayed each week, would you use this passage to encourage us, convict us, and further sanctify us into the people that you have called us to be. We're, we're all in need of spiritual renewal at times, sometimes uh, all together corporately. And so uh, in whatever ways that may be the case, would you use this text today to stir us up towards that? We want to be a church with great spiritual vitality for your glory and our resulting joy. Lord, would you uh, increase now and I decrease would you use me to faithfully proclaim and explain your word to those you've given me this morning, these men and women here, uh, just as one of your under-shepherds. It's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen. All right, we are, uh, as I've said, entering the, the final stretch of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and as we near the end, uh, you're going to notice that we're covering larger gr uh, groupings of text, larger sections of text than usual. That's not because uh, I'm getting antsy and ready to finish, and so I'm just trying to <laughs> cover more uh, faster. It's because towards the end, there's a lot more information that's uh, not narrative. It's names and more technical accounting of what's happening logistically, and I don't really need to explain that to you as much. But um, today, we'll cover chapters 8 through 10. And I think you'll see that it's really all one cohesive section that can be applied together. And really, it's a, it's a continuation of what I started to say last week, uh, that Nehemiah's desire and drive to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem was, was not really just about the wall. It was about what would, Lord willing, take place within the walls after they were rebuilt. And uh, the passages we'll read this morning are the description of that, you know, in, in our day, there are a lot of churches. You drive through Crestview, you'll see tons of church buildings, but sadly, the majority of the congregations that meet in those buildings are dying in a spiritual sense. That is, uh, they had a heyday, okay, like maybe 20, 30, 50 years ago even, uh, but with time, as uh, the people within the congregation began to age, the, the spiritual vitality of those congregations began to subside, and as many of the folks who built those churches began to go home to be with the Lord, their numbers just started to dwindle down, and that's, that's actually what happened with the church that used to meet in this building uh, here. The sweet older saints who were here only had about 10 members left, and they saw uh, that Mosaic was growing and doing missional work in the community, and so they gifted us this building so that we could uh, continue to use it as a, a hub for Great Commission purposes. But, you know, sometimes uh, older churches, if, if they catch the fact that they're dwindling early enough, well, they'll opt to attempt something that uh, in church world is called revitalization. Okay, revitalization, uh, which means exactly what it sounds like. Rather than close up shop and, and donate the building, they'll attempt to inject new life into an older church in order to hopefully see it to get back to being spiritually vibrant once again. And you know, uh, that usually costs a little bit to do because it normally means uh, doing some rebranding work. It usually means doing some updating of the facilities, like, uh, you know, covering up old school uh, vertical wood paneling because vertical's bad now, you know, like they got to get to like the horizontal shiplap wood because that's cool, right? So you got to get a flip that, you know, and uh, you know, you got to get some new signage and, and new website or an app, you know, because now like the websites are old, you got to have an app. And anyway, the reality is this, new shiplap and a nice website alone will not revitalize a church, you need a fresh, faithful, God-given vision to revitalize the church in order to see real spiritual renewal among a group of God's people. And so today in Nehemiah, uh, that's what we're going to see happen 
uh, with these Old Testament believers, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about several aspects of spiritual renewal. So uh, let's read, we'll talk about it. Just a warning, it's a good bit of reading this morning, so if you brought your, your reading glasses. All right, so in, uh, if you remember the context from last week, I'll just read this. Uh, Nehemiah 7.73, it says, The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel, they lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Israel... Sorry, so Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood other scribes, whose names I'm not going to read, on his left hand, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was uh, above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, hold on. So I, I love this. What, what a great picture, even in the Old Testament, of how God's people ought to be formed, right? The, the corporate teaching of God's word as a central mode of worship, and then uh, really small group discipleship, right? That, that's what's happening with the Levites who are, who are going out among the people, helping them to understand the law, giving them the sense of it, that is, interpreting it and helping them to apply its meaning uh, for them. That's, that's a good biblical model. That's the model we see throughout Scripture. That's why uh, Mosaic has that same model. We even see that model in the New Testament. Corporate teaching on Sundays, that's what we do here, and then uh, discipleship through community groups and men's and women's groups throughout the week. Okay, let's pick it back up. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and and, and the Levites, who, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions uh, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, uh, this is a little interesting, isn't it? After the law is read and interpreted for the people, they're, they're grieved, okay? But, but Ezra and Nehemiah are like, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Don't be mourning right now, okay? Uh, this is a, a, a joyful time. We'll get into this more in detail later. Uh, This wasn't like the first prosperity gospel church service where they rejected the teaching of repentance, okay? Uh, It's it's a good thing to read the Word of God and be moved by the Lord to repent, but because it was the seventh month, we're about to see, they were celebrating what was called the Feast of Booths, okay, which uh, was a Jewish holiday where they would remember the time that God provided for their ancestors in the wilderness after delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. And so um, that's why... Ezra and Nehemiah tell them not to be grieved. It's, it's like for us on Easter. I, I hope when I preach the gospel on Easter, uh, there are people who are spiritually uh, moved by the reality of their sin and the crucifixion of Christ on their behalf to make atonement and provide a way for their salvation. Uh, but we're going to celebrate on Easter. Okay? We're going to celebrate on Easter. Easter's not the day to be moping around and, and weeping excessively over your sin. It's a day to be in awe of God and be filled with joy over the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation from sin that he freely offers to us by grace through faith. That's not to say don't feel convicted, okay? because we can't help that. right? The Spirit convicts us through the proclamation of the Word, but there's an appropriate time for mourning, there's an appropriate time for rejoicing. And at a time like the Feast of Booths for Old Testament Israel or for Easter for us, those are times for rejoicing. Amen? Okay, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people 
And the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them uh, and made booths for themselves, each uh, on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of, uh, of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for, for, from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, uh, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, uh, from the first day to the last day, he read the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule so this is this is so good right so the people uh, in accordance with god's word begin to obey his word right they're they're hearing his word and they begin putting it into practice here they start worshiping him uh, again they hadn't been doing that it says from this time they had stopped doing that so they start doing that again worshiping god according to his word okay nehemiah 9 Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood the Levites, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Uh, then the Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Some translations clarify here uh, at verse 6 that it was Ezra who prayed all of this next part right here, okay? He says, You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so they went through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as, the sto- as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock uh, for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But... They and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They, they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing Their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, 
You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land uh, that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves and your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Uh, Are you starting to see a biblical theme here with God's people? He's perfectly faithful. We're not, right? Okay, 27. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard, heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn, turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. There it is. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your, your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we're slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So this is a summary of the Old Testament, right? This summary of the Old Testament, it's a corporate repentance of their sin. And now it says they're recommitting themselves to a covenant relationship with God and with one another. That is, uh, they're, they're going to agree on a renewed spiritual vision for how they should live in biblical community together. We're almost done. Nehemiah 10. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah. You can read the rest of that later in your devotion times. 28. The verse, <laughs> sorry, the rest of the people, oh man, these names. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year uh, and the, the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, uh, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it's written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, 
to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring the Levite, to the Levites tithes from our ground, for it's the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where, where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. All right. That's a lot, I know. Let's break it down into a few big principles we can apply. Here's the first and overarching thing I think we see, and I already hinted at it a bit, uh, but here it is. Spiritual renewal happens when there is a restored desire to worship the Lord according to the teaching of His Word. Okay, I, I think this is... Uh, pretty profound in the text that it, it doesn't say, right? Nehemiah and Ezra called the people <clears throat> and told them to listen up. Does it? You don't remember. It's a long way back. No, <laughs> it doesn't say that. It, it says the people gathered together as one man, that is in unity, and they tell Ezra to come. And teach them from God's word. And then uh, when he taught, it says the people's response was, Amen, Amen. To be clear, you know, a couple years ago, there was a Missouri congressman who closed out his prayer, obviously trying really hard to be uh, relevant or woke or whatever you call it. And he said, Amen and a women. So funny and uh, so not funny at the same time, because I'm sure someone had to tell him, Dude, that's not what that means, right? <laughs> like, amen is originally a, a Hebrew word with a, a root word of truth or certainty. And when it's used, it means let it be so. So essentially, all that we just read, Lord, or all that we just prayed, bring it to pass. Let it be so in our lives, and so this is the people's response in our passage to the Word of God being taught. And then it says that they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads to the ground and they worshipped the Lord together. That is, they, they humbly and reverently exalted God together. Lifting of the hands is a showing of surrender. Bowing of the head is a showing of meekness or submission. Both of these are appropriate in worship before God. And so... And these are the kinds of circumstances in which uh, we would see spiritual renewal or uh, revival or revitalization or whatever you want to call it, a, a reawakening of faith, if you will. There are some pastors today who will uh, you know, try to stir their churches back up spiritually, and I, I don't blame them for trying. You know, I know their motives are good, but they'll, they'll do it by putting a, a revival on the calendar, on the schedule. Like, okay, next weekend... We're having a revival. But a revival is not something that one man can just put on the church schedule and book the Holy Spirit to show up, right? It, 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 are, are you busy, Spirit? Can you, can you, could you really fall this week? Anyway, okay. It's something that the Spirit of God initiates among a group of His people where they all determine in unison by God's leading and God's timing and with momentum that only God can give that they want to recommit themselves to Him in a real, genuine way. But uh, anyway, that's, a, that, that's why at Mosaic we don't try to put revivals on the schedule, but it's also why we preach the Word every Sunday and we infuse all of our discipleship efforts with the Word of God, interpreting it and teaching men and women to apply it because uh, we're not opposed to revival. Don't hear me say that. Uh, we want to see revival. We want to see revival. But we know that the way revival happens is with, when men and women are sitting under the teaching 
of God's Word and really desiring for His Word to be worked out in their lives with their obedient participation in God's kingdom work. But, uh, that said, man, I, I'm so thankful to be a part of this local church. I'm so glad to be a part of Mosaic Church. I, I've had so many people come to me through the years. Uh, I've been overwhelmed by this as I've taken the pastorate here. And to just say how thankful they are to have found Mosaic because it, they all say this, because Mosaic just preaches the Bible. Amen. Mosaic just teaches the Bible. That's not a pat on my back. Mosaic has always done that, even before I was the pastor here. And it's, it's also not to say that there aren't other churches that, that do that and have done that you know, faithfully throughout history, but uh, it, it really is becoming more and more rare in our time for a church to just be all about the Word of God together on Sunday mornings and, and all throughout the week and, and for a group of young adults to say, Amen, Amen. This is what we want. This is what we want. Because this is not what the majority of our generation wants, is it? It's not what the majority of our generation wants. They want to distance themselves from this kind of thing. So I don't know if, I would, if it would be fair to call this a revival, but it definitely is something special to have a young church that just wants to have the Bible taught to them and to worship God in accordance with his word. I praise God that that is the culture here by his grace alone. And so as long as I'm here, I'll just keep doing my best, like Ezra, to bring you the word. And our leaders will keep striving to give you the sense of it so you can apply it because that's how we grow. That's how we grow. That's how we stay spiritually vibrant. Jesus himself says this in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He asks of God the Father, speaking of his disciples, that's us, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. He's saying the way people really change and grow is not by white-knuckling behavior modification, trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and trying really hard to be good. It happens. Transformation happens as they sit under the teaching of God's Word, being saturated by its truth to the point that when they're squeezed, so to speak, godly biblical living is what comes out, right? More on that in just a second. But first, I want to make a pit stop at this great thing that Nehemiah says in verse 10. He tells the people not to be grieved during this festival, and he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What, what an awesome verse. We should memorize that one. But anyway, I think a, a point of application here is that joy should be the ultimate emotion expressed in worship because it's what people ought to feel as they reflect on who God is, what he's done, and how these things result in our greatest possible good. Okay? I think this is another reason that Ezra and Nehemiah tell the people not to grieve over their sin just yet because uh, while the word of God will expose our sin and bring to light how we have not lived for him as faithfully as we ought, it always reminds us that, even still, he is gracious. He is gracious and ready to forgive. It reminds us that as stubborn and stiff-necked as God's people tend to be, us included, right? Us included? I hope you're saying right to that. Our sin and our rebellion will not have the last word. We see this over and over in Ezra's summary of the Old Testament, don't we? God, you were so good to us. You were so good to us. And we just went right back to sin again. But then you, you were merciful again. You didn't make it into us. You rescued us. And we had just ruined ourselves time and time again. You just keep saving us, right? I was talking to an older brother in Christ this week who said it so well. He said, man, in the Christian life, we keep messing up even when we should know better. He said, but God's grace 
just wears us down. God's grace just wears us down. And that's the truth. That's why Paul says in Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that brings men to repentance. He just keeps loving us. We blow it or we run off or we get sidetracked or whatever and we, we get all ashamed, right? We get all ashamed about it. And when we finally get the courage to come back, so often we're like a dog cowering with its tail between its legs, you know, looking at the ground. But God is like the Father, in the parable of the prodigal son, he runs to us. He runs to us. He is glad when we repent and has his arms open wide to embrace us again. Parents, I don't know about you, but this is how I can't help but feel with my own kids. When they have royally messed up, they don't want to acknowledge it, and so I have to discipline them or send them to their room to think about what they've done. And they come back unprompted. They tell me they're sorry and that they know why they did, or why what they did was wrong, and they want to make it right. Man, there's not much as a father that softens my heart like that. There's not much that softens my heart like that. I, I love I love to embrace my kids when they come back to me humbly after they have done wrong because it's just a picture of the gospel. That's how God is to us. That's how he is with me. I love that. And so this, I'm sure, is part of the motivation for the instruction to not grieve because the joy of the Lord is our strength. I love that hymn, Is Well With My Soul. Swallowed my soul because I, I think it just encapsulates the feeling of joy perfectly. It's sorry, the hymn's called It Is Well. But anyway, it is well with my soul. I love how it says it says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. You see, joy is wellness of the soul. That's what joy is, regardless of what's going on, because God has taught us that he is ever faithful. That's why I say joy is the ultimate emotion of worship. It's not that it's the only emotion that's appropriate in worship, okay? Like, listen, read the Psalms, man. Some of that is not happy, is it? <laughs> Some of the Psalms, like, you're at rock bottom reading that, okay? Like, that's grief and pain. And while most of the most common connotation for the word joy implies happiness, true joy, it transcends other basic emotions for the believer in Christ. We, we can even experience something like joyful sorrow. That's a category. That's a real category in the Christian life. We, we might just want to cry over the difficulty or pain of our circumstances, but God has been so good. He's been so good, and so we can still say, because of His grace and how He's just constantly doing good to us, despite us, it's well with my soul. It's well with my soul. And so I say joy should be the ultimate emotion expressed in worship. It's what people ought to feel as they reflect on who God is, what He's done, and how those things result in our greatest possible good. That's the gospel, <laughs> isn't it? That's the gospel. God was good, and we were stupid. And we tried to destroy our lives with sin, but he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life for us and take our punishment of death on the cross that we had earned for our wickedness and rebellion, and now, by faith, we can be restored back into a right relationship with him. Regardless of what's happening in your life, the ultimate thing you should feel, if you know the gospel, you call yourself a Christian, the thing you should feel most is joy. It's joy. Because you know. You know who God is. You know what he's done. You know those truths have resulted in your greatest possible good. This is why in Psalm 1611, the psalmist says to God, he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, 
there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Okay, let's keep going. We're, we're covering a lot of ground here. So Israel was in the zone spiritually. They were ready and willing to hear God's word, and they were worshiping as they had heard it taught to them, and they were uh, being cut to the heart. So they were ready to repent. Okay? But they, they're diverted from that for a short time because it's the Feast of Booths. And uh, it said that they understood why it was appropriate for them to be joyful and, and to celebrate first. And so then it says that the heads of fathers' houses go and study the word and see what they should be doing for this special occasion. And they found it all written in the law. Like, oh my goodness, there it is right there. You know, like how God had instructed Moses. And so they did it. They did it. Just as it was written. The side note for my actual point, men, dads, husbands, as always, I lay this before you. The spiritual leadership of your family falls on you. It falls on you. Okay. Be like the men that we see here. Let's be like them. I'm talking to myself too. Let's be like the men we see here. Don't neglect your God-given responsibility. Study the word for yourself so you can help your family and shepherd them towards faithfulness. If you don't, who will, man? If you don't, who will? Maybe your wife. That's not her job. So if it's her, she's picking up your slack where you're being irresponsible. Not to mention who's leading her. It's supposed to be you. If that's what you're doing, let me give you a strong encouragement. Step it up. Step it up. If you don't know how, let me just say, I'm, I'm sure you're a smart and resourceful guy. Okay, Just like you fixed your car, just like you did that home project by YouTubing it and getting help, figure it out, man. Figure it out. If you care about it, you'll figure it out. Join a men's discipleship group. Right? We would love to have you and help you if if you don't like me, that's fine. Go to Jason. If you don't like Jason, go to Tristan. Go to David. Go to Matt. There's lots of godly men here who would love to help you if you just ask. Just ask. There's no shame in asking that, asking for help. We'd love to help you. We're standing by ready to say yes to that. So be a man. Study your Bible and lead your family, okay? Or not. But don't act like you had an excuse, okay? I love you. I'm not saying this to make you mad. I'm saying it because someone needs to, and I'm the guy with the microphone today. So, uh, okay, point number two. <laughs> we see this. Number two, abiding in God's word will lead to obeying God's word because faith is not mere mental assent to a concept. It's a deep-rooted trust in a person, okay? Yes, I stole that language from our vision statement. <laughs> believe the gospel, abide in Christ, obey the word. Because in Nehemiah 8, we see God's people doing exactly that. And so this is a good opportunity to explain how those two pieces fit together, how that abiding and obeying fits together. The people of Israel are abiding in the word of God. As a result, they're starting to obey God. That's how it works. If you, if you know a lot of God's word, but you're not obeying much of it, well, then something's short-circuiting there, right? Something's not making a connection. Something is not working right. And I would argue it's probably a breakdown of faith. It's probably a breakdown of faith. Like I said earlier, the, this moment in Nehemiah of spiritual renewal, it's, it's like a genuine reawakening of faith. And the way you can tell is they're obedient. They're obedient. They're not just getting excited about hearing the Bible taught. They're seriously getting to work putting it into practice. It's, it's so weird. Like, this is not my notes. It's like a subculture, you know, where like people are like so stoked out to hear the Bible taught. Like, man, they just love to hear that guy, whoever it is, that guy they really like talk about the Bible, but not really apply it. They, they just want to hear him talk about it. <laughs> You know, like, they just really like that. Like, dude, if that's your, like, hobby, just hearing about the Bible and going on with your life, like, who cares, man? Like, go get a boat or something. Like, have a better hobby. Like, if you're going to hear the word, apply it to your life. Don't just hear it and just, what's the use in that? All right, sorry. 
That was in there. It had to, had to come out. I apologize. Patch that up and get some counseling. So, all right. <laughs> See, faith is not mere mental assent. Yes, faith involves mental work. It, it involves engaging sincerely with what God has to say. But at some point, it turns over into action. Right? At some point, it turns over into action. And I would argue, okay, that the only way that faith can be real and turn into genuine, practical faithfulness, look right at me, it's the realization that God is a real person. God is a real person. Okay, you're like, wow, God's a real... God is a real person. He's not a concept, okay? Or just a set of ideological principles for wise living. He's the real, sovereign, powerful, good, gracious creator and sustainer of the universe. That's who God is. And when you really believe that, when that clicks, you'll obey him. You'll, you'll start to obey him. Right? That's how that works. That's, that's when you really start to obey God. If you really get who God is, you'll stop playing church and you'll start actually listening to the Bible as though it's the actual words of God to you, written for you. So you can earnestly strive to understand and put into practice so that you can live in a way that pleases Him. Right? After a while, you'll begin to cling tightly to these words of Christ in John 15 that were the motivation for that song we sing, Abide. I love that song, right? We repeat to the Lord over and over, I depend on you. I depend on you. Jesus says in John 15, He says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. <laughs> apart from Jesus, you can't do any of this. right? So the word abide doesn't just mean listen to or pay some passing respects, you know, every now and then. It means trust and rely deeply upon. It means draw upon Jesus the way a branch has to draw life-giving nutrients from the vine or else it's going to shrivel up and die. Definitely not going to produce any fruit. You cut a branch off a vine, if it's producing fruit, that's really weird. It's not, it's not going to do that. That's not a thing, okay? That's what Jesus says. It's that simple. If we want to live a life of obedience to the words of God, the only way is by abiding in Christ in a way that affirms he's not just a nice idea. He's a real person. And he's the only one and the only supreme being who made us and who gives us life and breath and everything. Okay. So, Abiding in God's word will lead to obeying God's word because faith is not mere mental assent to a concept. It's a deep-rooted trust in a person. That person is Jesus. We see that at work in the nation of Israel in this passage of Nehemiah. And finally, as a result of that, we see, number three in your notes, faithful obedience will always entail repentance. Faithful obedience will always entail repentance. <clears throat> Once this Celebratory Feast of Booths is over. It says the people began to fast in sackcloth and ashes as a showing of their contrition for their sin. That is, you know, they like wore clothes that were like made out of like burlap type material, like scratchy, you know, put dirt on their faces, it says, to illustrate their, their spiritual poverty before the Lord. They wanted to do this immediately and clear the word. The word had really pierced them, okay, because they don't forget about it. They have this whole holiday and they still don't forget. We need to repent. They don't forget about that, right? Some people come here in church, and it's like, I need to repent. And then you leave, and you forget it. You go to the beach, forget about it. If you need to, if you need to repent, don't forget about it. The people didn't forget about it. 
So they spend time together confessing and forsaking their sin as a continuation of their worship. And this is, this is the logical flow, isn't it? This is the logical flow. If God is a real person and his, his word instructs us how to live, but we're really sinners, like we say, then repentance is going to have to be a regular part of life for us as Christians, isn't it? That's why Martin Luther, the reformer, famously said when Jesus called his disciples to repent, he intended that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. Right? How could that not be the case? How could that not be the case? Occasionally, people will tell me, Tad, your sermons are convicting. You know, They'll say that. And I always say, yeah, for me too. For me too, because it's not me who's doing the convicting. It's the Spirit of God through His Word. It's not me. I don't know about you, but pretty often I'll be reading the Word and it'll, it'll cut me as I'm reading. Because the Spirit will say, Tad, you need to listen up here. You need to listen to this. Don't just go teach it. You need to hear it for yourself. You need to look out for that thing in your life. For you, you know, Tad, that, that thing's creeping back into your life. And you need to put it to death again. You need to get it out. It happened just this week. Our group's in the book of Joshua. We just got to the part where God tells his people to destroy everything from the city of Jericho. But one man, Achan, he takes a little bit of the spoil for himself. He goes home, and he buries it under his tent. Right? I just thought, man, who among us doesn't do that with something? Who among us would raise their hand and say they're not tempted to do that with something? Worldly wealth or some idol of the world. We say we're a Christian, but if we don't stay accountable, we are liable to take that thing and try to hide it away in some dark corner of our heart to go back to when we think no one's looking. We're all aching. We're all aching. And because we're all like aching, we all need to be in a practice of repenting regularly. So we don't wind up like aching who ultimately dies in his sin. He dies in his sin. I said, I want to close today by enumerating on the aspects of biblical repentance, which I think we see from our text in Nehemiah. We see these all throughout Scripture, though. Biblical repentance has three components. The first one is confession of sin, both iniquity and transgression. Confession of sin, both iniquity and transgression. In order for you to deal with sin in your life, this may sound obvious, but you got to admit it's there. You got to admit that it's there, right? Okay, thanks, Ron. Somebody. The Apostle John says if we say we have no sin, we're calling God a liar. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that. If you're a believer, you need to confess your sin. And when you confess, you should be confessing to God in prayer, but also to your brothers and sisters in Christ. When it affects them, or inevitably at some point when it's against them, your sin has hurt someone else, and so you need to go to them and acknowledge that and ask for forgiveness in that. Also, just because James, the little brother of Jesus, says that confession to one another is part of what heals us. Confession of, of sin helps uproot that sin, helps pull it out. And whether that's you know, a spiritual thing or a practical thing, I won't try to split hairs on that, but I'll just say, when you confess to others, that humbles you in a deep way, doesn't it? It's actually kind of easy to confess to God. It's it's hard to confess to other people, right? But the Bible says to do it. It humbles you really deeply in a way that tends to kill that sin in a more pronounced way. Because now someone else knows. And if they're a good brother, or sister in Christ, they'll lovingly hold you accountable. Not to, 
condemn you, but they're going to they're gonna ask you how you're doing with that. How can I help you with that, brother? How, how can I bear that burden with you? How can I help you put that thing to death, right? Because they're for you. Not for shaming you, they're for your good. Now let me get into this iniquity versus transgression thing. The Bible has different words for sin to differentiate in its different aspects. Iniquity is like a bent, Okay, that word iniquity is like a it's like a sinful bent. So it just it's just used to explain our our proneness towards sin. Like when we're pressed or stressed by life, we we all have iniquity. We're all bent toward sin in varying ways that cause us to naturally gravitate toward doing what's wrong instead of doing what's right. That's iniquity. Some people are bent towards anger. Some people are bent toward Lust. Some people are bent towards passivity and so forth, right? But the word transgression means law-breaking. So it's used to define particular acts of sin, ways that we actually committed wrong, right? I just want to say something here because I've seen this. In communities like ours, I've seen a common problem. Often in discipleship or, or counseling type settings, people will start off, usually when they're talking about something someone else has done to hurt them, okay? They'll say these exact words. You ready? They'll say, look, I, I know I'm a sinner, but whatever, you know, <laughs> like, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't always do this. Sometimes I do. So be careful if you meet with me. But I'm really just curious what's going on. No one's ever going to meet with me after this. I have messed up. Anyway, I love you. I love you. But <laughs> I just want to know what's going on in someone's heart. If someone says, I know I'm a sinner, but they, but they, I'll stop and just ask. Okay, hold on, hold on. Before we talk about them, what are, you know you're a sinner. You just said that. What are some actual sins you've committed? Just you know, pick an easy one. What, what are some actual sins you've committed in the past week? Or, you know, maybe you're really good. In the past month, what's an actual sin you've struggled with, right? I kid you not. I get blank stares at that question. I just get blank stares at that question. And I think that's because in a community like ours, where we have sound doctrine, we know it's right to say that we're sinners, but we really don't believe it, do we? We really don't believe it, because we can't even think of any times we've sinned. We can't even think of any times we've sinned. <laughs> All right, okay. Which is really concerning. It's really concerning. If you say you're a Christian and you're reading the Word and the Lord is not convicting you of any sin in your life, well, I mean, either God's a liar or you're not engaging honestly with Him, right? Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, it might not be God you're worshiping but just an idealized version of yourself. If we're not careful, that's really easy to do. It's really easy to do. Like I said, especially in a community like ours, it's all about sound doctrine. Get into a practice. Whenever we read about sin in Scripture, just thinking about all the people around us who it applies to, but never ourselves. Never ourselves. So, in order to live a repentant life, it's critical that we're confessing our sin and not just our general iniquity, our sinfulness, but our specific transgressions, our actual sins. If you're a sinner, look right at me. You commit actual sins. You have to be repenting of those. Me too. Me too. Psalm 51, 1-5, King, King David famously said this. He says, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is all-encompassing. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see that divide? He's acknowledging both. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This particular psalm was written as David's confessing his sin with Bathsheba. We see that he's confessing both that he's a sinner, he's been one from birth, but also that he has committed actual acts of wickedness against God and others. So confession is the first component of biblical repentance. The second component is contrition over sin. Confession of sin and then contrition over sin. That is brokenness over our rebellion in spite of God's kindness. So basically, when you sin, you should feel bad about it. When you sin, you should feel bad about it. You should feel guilty because you are. You should feel guilty because you are. I'm not saying you should feel condemned, of course. We know, guys, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How sweet a promise that is. Romans 8, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that is not a pass for us to just not worry about our sin, it just means that we don't need to fear for our eternity every single time we sin. The, the Lord is long-suffering, and if we are united to Christ, He has already paid for every one of our sins, past, present, and future. How many sins had you committed when Christ died on the cross? Yeah, all of them, but also none yet, because you weren't alive. So He paid for all of them. He paid for... All of them, past, present, and future. He has nailed it. I'm really sorry for that. He has nailed it to the cross, Colossians said. He's not going to let go of you. He's not going to let go of us or grow weary of dealing with us because though our sins are many, his grace is more, always, always. But our sin, still, at its root, is rebellion against God and against the ways that he says that life is lived best. And so uh, we do not make peace with our sin and brush it off like nothing happened when we know we've committed it, right? Like, like Israel, we should be grieved by it. We should be broken over it, considering how incredibly kind and good God has been to us. It should crush us when we go against our Heavenly Father, when he's been nothing but gracious and merciful to us. That should crush us to feel that. And thus, just like with confession, if you're, if you're not feeling a sense of contrition, of sorrow, remorse, if your conscience is not pricked when you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, then that's worrisome. If you don't feel it, that's, that's concerning it's a good thing to feel bad about your sin because that means you have the Holy Spirit convicting you. That's a, that's a comforting thing. God's Word says he, he chastises every son whom He loves. Right? That's a good thing. Conviction is a sign that we are spiritually alive. On the other hand, a lack of conviction would mean, well, you know, if you pinch a dead body... You know, <laughs> It's not going to say ouch, right? So anyway, you do the math on that. But um, Psalm 51, again, David says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, listen to this, are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He's saying that when we sin, God is not looking for us to pay Him back. Some of you have this debtor's ethic. You need to get rid of that. You can't pay God back. It's too costly. That's why Jesus had to die, friend. Stop trying to pay God back. That's not Christianity. You can't pay God back. 
So the correct sacrifices from us for our sin are brokenness and contrition over our sin. It's, it's really, it's, it's truly being sorry. That's what it is. And finally, you wrap it up because my mic's telling me. Finally, speaking of really being sorry, the last component of biblical repentance is commitment to change. Commitment to change. Not merely feeling bad, but beginning to live right. Okay? Not merely feeling bad, but beginning to live right. You know, it's, it's weird. I think some people just come to church in order to feel a little bad. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't know. I like, just want to feel bad about myself a little bit today. You know, <laughs> like a spiritual masochist or something, you know, because they can, they can ease their conscience if they can feel a little bad. Feel a little bad about myself, and then I can go about my life. If I, no, I felt bad about it. I felt bad about it, so that's good. But in order for repentance to be complete, it has to include change. It has to include change. If you don't at least have a plan to change and do differently, then are you really even sorry? At the very least, it'd be hard to tell, right? It'd be hard to tell. Obviously, old habits die hard, right? And so we're all going to struggle. Listen, we're all going to struggle with besetting sins, right? Sins that we keep cutting the head off and it keeps growing back. That happens in the life of, of Christians. Don't feel like there's something wrong with you, okay? There, there are besetting sins that are really hard to put to death and you have to keep putting them to death every day sometimes, it feels like, okay? But over time, when we're diligent and we're truly seeking the Lord and desiring to be different and to live in God-honoring ways, we will make headway. We'll make headway. We'll see spiritual growth happen, right? So, for instance, like if you struggle with anger, things that used to cause us to lose it, right? We're able to breathe in the midst of, right? And pray about. And eventually, we're able to catch even earlier, preach the gospel to ourselves and not even go down that war path, not even go down that path of anger. I'm not going that way, right? That's just one example. That's how it works. The process of sanctification is progressive, which means it might go slower than we'd like, but it does progress. It does move forward. In the course of time, we become truly different. We change. We don't just feel bad, but we begin to live right. We begin to be conformed more to the image of, of Christ by the Spirit. Psalm 51, 12 through 15, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So you see it there, and again, we see this with Israel too. In chapter 10, they, they recommit themselves to a covenant with God, and they determine to be different. They elaborate in all the specific ways, and they conclude by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. That just means they won't neglect to worship Him with their lives together as they've been instructed to do, right? They're not going to neglect it this time. So, that's a lot, I know. That's, that's what the process of spiritual renewal looks like, right? It starts with a restored desire to worship the Lord according to the teaching of His Word. From there, as we begin to really abide in God's Word, we'll see ourselves desiring to obey Him, to obey His Word. Our faith will not be mere mental assent. This won't just be a hobby to us, right? But it'll become a deep-rooted trust in a person. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And ultimately, this will lead to real life change. It'll lead to transformation. We become not just people who hear the Word, but people who allow the Word to read them and do spiritual heart surgery on them. Our lives will be characterized by 
constant cycles of repentance. Not just acknowledging that we're sinners, but practically renouncing real sins in our lives. We'll start to consider repentance not a bad, scary, religious word, but a good, gracious opportunity that the Lord gives us every day to move closer to Him. That's what repentance is for the believer in Christ. It's an opportunity, a gracious opportunity. Every day, move closer to me, son or daughter. Come closer to me. Get rid of that thing. Put that to death. It's not good for you. It doesn't give you life. Come to me. That's repentance for the believer as we further embrace his good and right designs for our lives. All right. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you as always, for your word. How it, it's amazing, God. These three chapters in Nehemiah, so encouraging and so convicting at the same time, Father. You're so good like that. Thank you that as we read your word, God, you are forming us. As we genuinely strive to abide in you, abide in your words, abide, draw life from the things that you have said to us, God. You help us to obey you. You change us. You change us from the inside out. You change our hearts. Give us new desires to obey you, to live for you. And that begins to happen. We begin to repent and trust you for real. Father, I just just pray right now, if there's there's anybody in this room today who wants that, they feel like maybe they feel like they've tried Christianity before, but they're kind of realizing like, no, they didn't. Maybe, Maybe they didn't really trust you. God, maybe there's someone here who wants to do that. They want to trust you. They, from your word, they've seen you're a God who can be trusted. You're a God who is powerful and strong and sovereign, but who's gracious and merciful and safe to come to. You don't want to hurt us. You want to help us. You want to give us our greatest possible good. You want to restore our joy, Father. I pray if there's anybody in here who needs their joy restored and wants to come to you, they do that today. We love you, Jesus. Continue to let me pray. Amen.